Hey guys, just a quick heads up that this is the interview taken from the full The Gym Session podcast. So if you'd like to listen to the complete episode, you can find it on the Footy Live app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Buzzsprout. If you're enjoying the content, don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating, and share. If you're not, try to do it anyway so I can keep my job. Uh, That's all from me. Enjoy the interview and do all that stuff I said before so I can get my job. Okay, today's guest is one of the best defenders the great game of Australian rules football has ever seen. He played 200 games at the highest level, winning a drought-breaking premiership, a Jack Dye medal, and his reading of the play, courage, and on-field leadership earned him five consecutive All-Australians to end out his incredible career. This man is an entrepreneur, author, and education professional with a strong faith, exceptional values, and a love of having fun. I've been waiting for this moment a very long time. I've always wanted to rants with somebody, and I finally get the opportunity on this very special edition of the gym session welcome mr alex rance thanks jimmy it's good to be uh good to be a part of it i'm, I'm not a huge fan of acc- accolades and things like that so for uh yeah for the intro to go for that long i was i was feeling very very nervous but i'm very grateful uh, no worries but hey uh congratulations on the comeback game as well are uh, you running out for seymour this weekend i think i just wanted to confirm though rancy this is just a warm-up game before coming back to richmond for the for the four pete <laughs> yeah, well, I'm actually dropping my car off to get a service today. There was a few people asking the same thing, but uh, no, no, there's no be no four Pete on the cards. I'm just out to to have a kick with my mate uh, Ben Clifton, who uh, I think he was the the coach and uh, captain out there for a little while, and now we're just gonna go out, have a bit of fun, and hopefully kick a few snags. Uh, that's good. There's a lot of projects for you going on. Obviously, you're a bit too busy to get back into the AFL. The Academy, you, you co-founded that in 2016. I honestly wish this was around when I was in school. So it's it's basically a full-time AFL passion education program, and it's an alternate alternative to you know your standard year 11 and 12 schooling instead of doing VCAL. Can you can you explain what um, what that's all about? Yeah, sure. So how it originally came about was uh, I got drafted in, in the end of 2007 and along with a, you know another four or five guys. <clears throat> and then every year, obviously, a new draft crop would come through and everyone expects that they're going to have a 12-year career, pay off their house, a Brownlow, Norm Smith, Coleman Medal, all the, all the bells and whistles. But the, the harsh reality is uh, the large percentage don't really get that opportunity. Um, and with athletically uh, oriented young men, what can happen is, uh, and women now, obviously, with AFLW kicking off and going full steam ahead, all the eggs can go in that football basket rather than diversifying. So what we wanted to do is create an education uh, platform over year 11 and 12, uh, which is a full-time education platform linked in with a Cert 3 and Cert 4 and also your VCAL uh, to give you a a holistic education about yourself, about what your passions are and and give you a a good uh, professional foundation to be able to do whatever you like to do. So obviously it's centered around your passion for football, um, but it's what about football do you love and how can you have a plan A, B, C, and D, which are all going to be equally as satisfying to you. This curriculum is awesome. So just, it's basically like being in an AFL environment, isn't it? Like Monday to Friday, you do your wellness check-ins, how many hours you've slept, how do you feel, uh, how do you feel the skill sessions, recovery sessions, cross training? Is is that like, it's like the closest thing to being in an, an AFL environment? 
Well, that's what we wanted to simulate. Um, don't get, don't get us wrong. We're not doing uh, just kicking footies and, and pushing tin all day. There's a, a very strict curriculum that we stick to, but we make sure that everything links in with what our passion is. So uh, we're not going to be studying Shakespeare and Othello and um, you know the Lord of the Flies and things like that and doing uh, numeracy, which isn't relevant to us. Some of the things that we will be studying are maybe the Essendon Supplement Scandal or uh, Gender Equality in Sport, the Adam Goods documentary, uh, what a energy systems in uh, in your body uh, what's what is uh, movement patterns and things like that for biomechanics when you're running when you're kicking all of that linking into making you a better footballer uh, but also uh, a better leader a better person uh, things like that as well so there's there's definitely that AFL uh, structure and system that uh, we've tried to mimic but there's definitely a really strong sense of um, curriculum and education that goes along with it as well yeah great and you've got you've got a few um, campuses now now doing it so if people want to uh, apply or um, get more information they can just go to is it the the academy website yeah the academy.com.au and we've got a campus in Geelong uh, we've got a campus in Essendon and then we've got a campus in Wangaratta and our dream eventually is to cover most of Victoria um, and and really something that we would like to align ourselves with is is each NAB league um, team or zone so you know Ballarat Bendigo Gippsland Eastern Rangers all that kind of thing so Currently, we we have a, a pretty good coverage of the Falcons, obviously the Bushies, uh, and then Northern Knights, Porter Cannons, Western Jets in that Essendon campus. So, um, yeah, that's that's our that's our dream and our vision, and hopefully we can achieve that over the next three to five years. Mm, your schooling was a bit different, wasn't it, Rancy? So you went to a, a music and art school from kinder to year ten, then you you go to Guildford Grammar, I think it is, to finish a year in twelve because of the the sports teams. But you weren't really a footy lover, were you, when you were growing up? You know, you loved archery, outdoor things, you had horses, and your dad was a West Coast champion, second captain of all time at the club. But you didn't really like like footy until what you're twelve years old, or? Yeah, I never played. Uh, I never played in a team until I was uh, twelve. My, my very first possession, actually, of, of organised football was a throw. I jumped on the ball <laughs> and was freaked out by everyone around me, so I just threw it in between my legs and obviously gave a free kick away. But yeah, I was just into so many different things, and it probably um, as my career grew and, and my, I grew up as a person, it still that stayed the same. I was always really interested in different things. Um, and so, yeah, I was always kicking the footy in the backyard with my old man, but had motorbikes and um, like to explore in the in the bush and, and things like that. So I was always uh, looking for for other cool things to do, not just footy. What what was the like teenage early twenties Alex Rance like? Because you've admitted in the past you're a little bit extra confident. You didn't listen as much as you should. A bit cheeky. You drove a VX white Commodore, spun it out on day two of having your license. You told Matty Richardson off first day of training. What what was the young Alex Rance like? Um, that's a very good question. I've never been asked that before. Um, I, I think I was just. Uh, lover of life and just really like over enthusiastic about everything and, and probably um, egotistically thought that my way was always good. And, uh, but it always came from a place of wanting to help and, and wanting to make the place better. But sometimes it might've come across as being a bit of a um, know-it-all, but yeah, like I, I I probably wouldn't have been that fun to, to, to teach actually in, in class because I was always asking questions that um, probably shouldn't have been asked, but I think that's what, um, I guess made me uh, a good leader at a football club is because once I actually worked out how to ask questions the right way, it was really beneficial to the group because 
how often have we been in those circumstances, whether it's in a, an office, uh, you know, a, a big meeting with, with um, your bosses or whether it's with coaches at a footy club or leaders or things like that, where you really want to ask a question, but you don't want to feel like an idiot. You don't want to be the one that asks that awkward question where I just would always ask those awkward questions. Cause I just, I didn't either care what they thought or I just thought it would be beneficial for us to know. So yeah, that always was the case from, from 15 onwards, but um yeah, like probably a younger teenager, I was into like drama and public speaking and um, yeah, what else? Like always like arts and crafts kind of stuff, always building things in the shed and yeah, that was probably me. Yeah, well, you said you, you de- developed your leadership skills a little bit later and you learned you were developing at Richmond. Early days, you you clashed with Jack Rewald a lot, didn't you? Um, and now you're, you're best major, I mean, you wrote a book about him. Uh, how was that relationship early on? Because it seemed like you really didn't get along. Yeah, it's we're, we're probably the, we're just this like this cut from the same cloth. Like we're very similar, and we both have had good ideas, but we're both very outspoken about them and probably asked questions that we didn't care whether people thought we were stupid or not. And so we would ask questions of each other and challenge things of each other. But at that time, we probably weren't mature enough to receive it in the right way. But then as we grew together, we started to understand that this person actually does love me and he does want what's best for me and the team. And this isn't coming from a place of negativity. Uh, and then I think that always, that comes with, with growing up too. Um, when you get told off as a kid or when you get challenged as a kid, you always think you're in trouble rather than that person actually cares and loves me. So yeah, our relationship started off pretty rocky. We, we definitely got in a, a fair few push and shoves at, at training and, and things like that. Um, but as time went on, we saw the value in each other and it was actually probably the power of, of us. We had a really strong leader in the forward line who was like, you need to get Rancy's boys. And I was like, you need to get Jack's boys. So we would have these like epic clashes and actually Dimmer said at one training session, this is, it's starting to go too far. Like it's, you guys are getting way too competitive backs v forwards. Like you probably got to tame it back a bit. So, um, yeah, that was just, we, we were trying to drive for success and, and we got there in the end, which was fantastic to see, but um, not without it sort of hiccups and learnings along the way. Yeah. Well, in, in around 2016, a lot of things changed around the club. I don't know if maybe that's when your relationship was was at its peak and, and came together. Um, but there was obviously the talk about the acceptance, vulnerability, a mental shift, celebrating authenticity. What really drove that? Because, that you know, Emma Murray and Shane McCurry came on around that time. Dimmer changed his philosophy. You became the vice skipper. Uh, you know, you said Ben Rutten's had a, a massive influence on that. It, what was the major shift? Like who pushed it the most? It's it was definitely um, from the from the top down. So Trent and um, Trent and Dimmer obviously need to set the vision, mm. uh, which all bosses need to do. So whether that's a CEO, general manager, whatever, need to set a vision. And a lot of teams try and do that, but it's about having the cattle around to say, "Yep, I believe in that. I believe that what you're saying is authentic, and I want to come along for the journey too. I believe that that's the best way to go as well." And so. It obviously started with with Dimmer and Trent, but I, I think Jack was one. Um, he, Jack, Jack and I both, because we're more freelancey agents, we, we had two choices. We could have said, you're an idiot. I'm going to form a coup. You're clearly not in a good spot, um, Trent or Dimmer. We're taking this joint over and we're going to do what we like, like run this sort of guerrilla form yeah. of government. Like, But 
we didn't because we believed what they were about and we believed that what our place was was the support. It, it, we weren't the man. We weren't supposed to be the man. That was Trent's job. That was Trent's role. And I think it took probably a little bit of um, humility for us to say we understand our, our place and, and we, we back you up. And then things start to fall in line when you get people that are willing to sacrifice for others, whether that's title, whether that's... Um, possession of the ball, whether that's public recognition even, because, you know, it goes down that Trent's probably the greatest captain that Richmond's ever seen now. Um, and then that's fantastic. And I love that for him. And, you know, a part of me probably does want, yeah, Jack and I to, to be along there as, you know, they were great leaders and support too, but that will probably get uh, lost to history. But that's, you know, we're part of it. So it was, it was definitely worth it. Mm. But was it easy others to get along like obviously you guys as the leaders you said you you got on board with it but I mean Emma Murray said you know Josh Caddy thought she was full of shit when she first came on and some players might have questioned what was going on was was it hard to get everybody on board or was it like a kind of a quick process once it started working we'll be back after a quick break So that's, yeah, that's actually a good point. So Emma Murray, it was really interesting how Dimmer um, broke down and presented to us why we were doing the, and it's, it's not the Emma Murray experience, but it's just about be, tackling the emotional and psychological part of the game of football because we spend so much time working on the physical. We do preseason, we do gym sessions, we can kick the football. That's that's physical. We do a lot on the tactical side. We do game reviews, pre and post. We do individual reviews with our line line um, line coaches. So the tactical side's taken care of to help our decision making, but. We don't do, and not a lot of teams at that stage were doing anything on how we feel about the game. So, yeah, I get that that's what I'm supposed to do, but I don't believe that it's the right thing to do. And how can I make myself believe that it's the right thing to do? Um, If I make a mistake, how can I pull myself out of that? And that was just one side of the game which was so heavily neglected and and Dimmer presented it so well that it's like, well, gone are the days now. Talent's too good. Coaches are too good now. Systems are too good. This is the new frontier. And now we see everyone doing it. That's, it's, the, it's how you get connection. It's how you um, form strong teams is from this um, emotion. Because we're all emotional beings. We're like the stock market's emotional. Uh, the decisions we make on a day-to-day basis are all emotional. So if you can find a way to cut out the fact from the emotion, then that's the power of that sort of psychological training. And Emma Murray is the best and like I haven't had an experience with many, but the proof's in the pudding. Like she brought us from 
basket cases that would, you know, get knocked out of finals by 70 points in the first quarter to consistent performers on a regular basis. She brought Bathurst drivers to being the best in the world, tennis players, basketball players, like she's done it with everyone. And it's, she has, she's got the runs on the board now. Mm. I've loved listening to you speak about your growth as, as a person. Like a lot of people see you as like the practical joker, you're the larrikin at the club, but you're also a, a real general. And and Conrad Marshall speaks about you, you know, barking orders at, at players at really like a forceful way. You're the general. One time you were going through the race, I think it was a preseason game, and you're saying, you know, when you put this jumper on, it's a contract, it's an effing contract. And you were really forceful in that. And how did you find that balance between like being the practical joker, Alex, and then the, the general Alex, uh, did it take a while to develop those skills? I, th- I think it, uh, it did. Um, and then they always throw like, you know, the old adage liked versus respected. And I think everyone just wants to be liked. And so it is hard to know where to draw the line in it, but I, I thought um, how you earn the liked, how you earn the right to be a clown and muck around is train harder than anyone so they can never question it. So even if you don't play well, I still train my backside off and I'm trying to do the best that I can. And this, so that was the story for me early days in my career. I couldn't get the ball to save my life. I was running under contests. I was running the wrong direction when I should have been running the up. Like I just was not a good footballer. Athletically, I was very gifted, like in the gym, in preseason. And so I was allowed to be a clown because everyone's like, well, we can't, we can't knock his effort. And then from that built, well, now actually I learned how to play the game. And and so that's how you sort of balance it. But it is a, it is a very precarious balance, especially when young kids come in because you don't want to squash their personality, but it's sort of just like, let's get some runs on the board first, make the group believe that you're a hard worker and that you're not just um, taking the Mickey out of this situation and you're going to help us be better. And then let's add, personality and flair and and joking and and things like that in because um yeah you don't want to come in and think and everyone to think you're a fool and then when you say something worth saying everyone's like ah yeah he's just a fool so it's it is a it is a very big balance for for young players to take Hmm. is it i don't know if it has something to do with it but you told me the other day you actually didn't enjoy game day um is that because you had to be a different person or is that because of the pressure or what made it what made you not enjoy game day yeah, I didn't enjoy game day. Um, I enjoyed after game day uh, and I knew that game day was necessary to, to validate all the work that I'd done. Um, and you need a, a testing moment to see whether your system and process works, to see whether you've improved. So I saw, I saw how necessary it was for the whole part of being a professional athlete. But to be a professional anything, you need to constantly be put through tests. So the reason why I didn't like game day was because it made me the most extreme version of myself in, in terms of a leader, in terms of a competitor, in terms of a, um, the dominant physical person that sits within me. So, you know, when I contrast that against my faith, being very loving, being very inclusive and supportive, it, 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 it's the polar opposite. You've got to be very focused, very disciplined, very dominant against your opponent. Like I've got to basically make him have a bad day. Mm. So it, it, you can see how it sort of, you know, tears against you sometimes, but the connection part 
and probably that's where my leadership changed. At the start of my career, I was dominant to my opponents and I was dominant to my teammates as well. Be here, stand there, do this. Why didn't you do that? Da, 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 da. And it and it really became abrasive. It made some people better, but it made other people really not um, uh, really shut down. Mm. So then I had to realize that that's not the best form of leadership and finding that balance. So um yeah, it was it was a hard um, hard balance to strike, and I guess that's probably in the end. I was like, I think I think I've had enough of that side of of this game, um, and that's why that's where the academy came because I can still do all those things that I loved about football, helping young people out, be physically fit, go outside, um, watch them grow. You know, all those things that I love so much about everything other than game day, I can do now on a daily basis. Is that common that a lot of players don't enjoy game day? Uh, I think I think it's an interesting transition because when you go from a young player, you, you always love game day. Like mm-hmm. every kid from, you know, Oz kick up to when they're probably 18 loves game day because it's not really pressure. You're playing with your mates, having a laugh. Then it becomes your job in a business. And slowly that love of the game probably starts to get strained. And so... I think, and that's where the anxiety comes in and the stress. So I think there would be a large portion of the AFL that doesn't like game day. Um, They like what it does for them socially or financially, or um, even from an an emotional egotistical perspective, what it does to their position in the community, but they don't like the feeling that this is pass or fail. This is a, this is a big test for me. Um, You know, imagine sitting an exam every week, on a weekend, like, you know, if in, at your uni, like that would be pretty exhausting after a while. Some people would thrive and think, yep, this is me. I, I need to learn. I need to, this is testing me. Other people would be like, this sucks. This is really nerve wracking, but I love the study component. Um, so I think there would be a large portion of the AFL that doesn't really enjoy game day. Do you think that's social media and the newspapers, the meet, the pressure from the media is the biggest part of that? Or is it is it mostly from the the, the club itself, like the coach and, or the fans? What what plays the biggest the biggest part in the pressure? I think it definitely is the uh, the the social um, observation of the game. Everyone has an opinion now. Everyone like there's however many million reporters now on Instagram because everyone has their opinion. So and like the only reporters that I really respect now are the ones that back it up with stats and there's evidence rather than just an opinion piece. Like, cause I feel that's, that can be quite damaging because players see it regardless of, or, or hear it, whether it's my mum or dad reading it and they say, Oh, you know, it's okay. Like, Oh, what have you read now? Like it's, it gets back to us in some capacity. So I think that definitely has has a part to play in, and I think it needs the the accountability. And I know there's a new law that's been passed about trolling and things like that on social media. Um, and I think there definitely needs to be more professional accountability in the in the reporting space. But um, we know that that's what comes with the territory. So you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you want to come into the AFL system, you've got to know that's a part of it. But and I think it's also it is becoming such a intense. Um, lifestyle that you can't even go out and have a coffee with someone. You can't go and have a beer at the footy. You know, some the Port Adelaide kids going to the ten, uh, going to the swimming, and they were eating food and took their mask off, like automatically scrutinised. Like it's just really, 
it can be a really heavy burden to bear for young players. Did it affect you a lot? What, what people wrote about you or said about you? Um, I can remember one time when it really did. So the whole staging sort of saga, like when, and like, you've got to understand that players, the good players are always trying to find loopholes. are always trying to beat the system. You're not just going to go, okay, I'm going to take what the game's giving me and just do the best that I can. No one's that athletically gifted. Maybe Buddy Franklin, that's about it. <laughs> but you have to find loopholes. And so my loophole was, um, because I couldn't scrag anymore. It was sort of pushing, finding angles, sort of shunting players under the ball, which was technically pushing the back, but it was legal because I wasn't pushing them in the back. And so then that sort of started to get taken away and the rules started to get changed. And so I, you know, tried different positions and then I'd stand in front and I would sort of lean forward and then that would sort of, I'd get the free kick. So like then it's that I got done for staging against Essendon. Uh, And then it seemed like every week, as soon as I put myself in a position of the front space and I sort of made any sort of movement forward, up the staging again. Like, so I do remember times when it did particularly like frustrate me and I changed my game as a result of it, which was really, I should never have done. Hmm. Um, but then I, I reset myself and I was like, you know, cause I had like a two or three game patch where I was just like getting so frustrated and almost changing my game because of what the media was saying about me. Yeah rather than just do what you do. Like if you give a free kick away, who cares? But at least it's your brand. Yeah. Did you, is that because you cared what people thought about you or was it more like your family reading that stuff or what, what's the, what was the reason it affected you that much to change your game? Um, I think it did affect me because th- there is a large element of shame that comes with clickbait. Yeah. Like you don't, they don't say, um, uh, like Alex Rance made a forward made a forward movement, a questionable forward movement in the game. It's like Alex Rance staged. Yeah. Alex Rance is a stager. This is a blight on his career. Mm. Like all of that, they're like shaming comments. They're mm. really like personal attacks. It's not just like you're not commentating on the action anymore. You're you're now calling my values into question yeah. and saying that I'm trying to bring the game into disrepute by trying to be a better player. Like so, I think it definitely did affect me personally and, and of course by extension it affects my family because my old man you know at, at work like yeah you know, and he was he was a hard man like he'd been in a few scuffles in his time and um on the field obviously um and, and you know and someone coming to him and saying oh geez your boy looks a bit soft doesn't he like how, how do you reckon that would affect my old man and and even my relationship you know, he might come up to me and go, mate you gotta cut that staging stuff out so just like Hang on, just because one flog has said that it's a sta- it's a staging act, you've now caused an awkward conversation between a father and a son. That's the damage that that misreporting can do. Mm. But yeah, no, that's that's interesting to think about. Especially you you didn't talk much footy with your dad, did you? It was you kind of wanted to keep it separate. Yeah, like we because it is that professional boundary. Like I would never talk to him about. Um, you know, what his profit and loss is for the real estate business that he runs or, you know, what's your marketing strategy yeah. for, for the ferries that he runs or, you know, different, like what's, what's your, how many jets have you got coming into the jet base for Paul? Like, you know, I don't, I don't have those business chats with him. It's kind of like a weird thing to talk about. So for me, that was my job now. And I was lucky enough that he understood that, that he, if I wanted his advice, he would give it to me. But the best thing about having a father that, 
had been there is he understood the emotional side. So he, like tactically, we wouldn't really talk that much, but emotionally we would like, you know, when you have a bad game, he would already preempt it with the text, like, or if it's coming up to a big game, he would already preempt it and know how you feel. Um, and I feel like that's my goal now as a retired player is to not hound players or, you know, you should have done this, you should have done that, but it's to preempt the, the potential lows that are there. If a player has a bad game, call them up for a chat. You don't have to talk footy. It eventually it'll get round to it. You know, it will, but it's, it's about being there for a support. Are you going to get into AFL coaching? Because you, you know, you said you've loved it. You loved your time, obviously coaching the, or being a mentor for the VFL boys when they won the flag. But um, I heard a comment you said about maybe the media would be too cutthroat or you didn't like that aspect of coaching. Is that what would keep you out of it? Um, I, I do love coaching. Like it's my, um, it's probably the thing because coaching is just an extension of teaching really. Um, and I think as I get better, apologies on my. Uh, <laughs> That's right. You're a busy man. You're a businessman now. So black <laughs> messages. Let me, just, let me just turn these messages off. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, um, so coaching, I... Yeah, I love, and I think something in me would love to, um, so I'm, I'm coaching developmental skills and developmental um, athletes at this point in time, so year 11 and 12, still finding their way. And I think a part of me would love to work again with the elite guys that sort of can pick it up really quick and they can challenge and they can, like, I think that that really does um, interest me. But, yeah, again, it, it comes back to that holistic cost. So me going back into that sort of environment, what does that do to my weekends? Excuse me. What does that do to my commitment to my family? Um, you know, how can I have a, a spiritual routine that I can feel confident that I'm doing enough with? Um, the media side is probably, probably less because you can control that to a certain degree. You don't have to do as many commitments from a, a media perspective, but certainly you get talked about as well. If your line is not doing well, um, then you'll get talked about and scrutinized as well. So I don't know. I haven't really put a line through that idea, but it's definitely a pretty big project to weigh up whether the pros and cons. Hey, are people hesitant to ask you about your faith at all? I mean, I feel a lot of people don't bring up religion. Um, was it brought up at, in the club at all? Um, did people talk to you about it? Uh, like I, I'm, I could read the play. <laughs> pardon the pun. I could read the I could read the play on and off the field. So I could see if this was if it was going to be a bit of a. Um, someone trying to have a laugh at my expense, I'd, I'd roll with it and not really give it much, give it much oxygen. But if it was someone who was genuinely, genuinely interested and I had some really fantastic conversations with Basher mm. um, and with uh, Sean Hampson and with, with Grimesy and, and guys like that, who if they take you aside and go like, Oh, why don't you celebrate birthdays? Or, um, you know, why don't you come to the Christmas party? Or um, why did you do this in this scenario? But, your face says that and sort of, you know, some, and sometimes I get it right. Sometimes I get it wrong. I'm not saying I'm, you know, the second coming of Jesus, but like all I'm saying is now this is the life that I want to live. And this is the moral code that I'm trying to live by. Sometimes I'll pass. Sometimes I won't. But in answer to your question, I think 
everyone's really hesitant to talk about faith and to talk about religion because um, it has been the cause of so much um, probably pain in in history. Mm. But I think now, because it used to be a very judgmental conversation, that that it's very um, ram it down your throat, this is what you should believe, where I think now society's at a point where we can have deeper conversations and ask why. Um, and, and that's what sort of made me return to my faith being a Jehovah's witness is that I was asking myself these questions, why? And I didn't have the answers. So I needed to search for them. And then I found them and then it was like, okay, this sort of makes sense. And I just, you know, hope that a lot of other people do the same thing. Keep an open mind about like, you know, is, is 80 years all we've got? Why do we die? Like, well, why do good, bad things happen to good people? Is there really a God? Like all these things, all these different questions that like often just go in the too hard basket and just like, I'm just going to busy myself. Um, yeah, it would be nice if, if more people sort of opened up and chatted about that. Yeah, no, that's good. I think the conversation should be, we should open up and learn about these things. And it looks from the outside that it might be changing slowly in, in the AFL. And obviously the football sport is, is a vehicle to, to change society. And hopefully it is. I mean, you look at, uh, I think there's a book um, written, the football solution, how Richmond's premiership can save Richmond. And it highlighted the, um, the diversity in the, in the group just by naming the the first six players in the Norm Smith medal voting. You got Dusty who's a, the son of a former bikey boss. They wrote Hawley who's a devout Muslim, Alex Rance, a Jehovah's witness, Shane Edwards, an indigenous Australia, Dion Prestia, Italian Australian, Jack Graham, a teenager from, from Northern suburbs of Adelaide, all getting together and accepting each other and learning about each other's cultures. So what is it like that actually inside from, from the outside it looks like it's changing, but to be in it, well, what was the culture like? You very much. They, they, that I haven't read that statement before, but I feel like they've nailed it. And that, um, that legacy is Ivan Marich's. Like, of if it had to go to one person, it, when he came along, he was the one that was most proud of his um being Croatian his family he he introduced us to the Dinamo soccer club in St Albans like his mum would come in and and cook us amazing feeds for lunch and stuff like it was and he was teaching us about um you know Croatian culture and language and stuff like that which empowered other people to be like hey I want to do that too like you know so then the Indigenous boys started to feel more proud that this is acceptable. Like, you know, this is my tribe, my language, my family, my um, beliefs. And then Basha was very strong on that too. I probably wasn't as, um, cause I was still sort of working out my own faith at that stage. I wasn't as probably vocal about being a Jehovah's witness and um, you know, the things that I did and didn't um, sort of stand for at that time. But um yeah, it, it is very true that the um, Richmond culture is super inclusive and allows opportunities for people to say their piece and say their truth. Brilliant. I wanted to ask you about 2019. Obviously, it was a, it was a big uh, big year for you. You played AFLX. Uh, no, but round, round one, <laughs> I guess, round one against Carlton is, is that, when, that was about the pinnacle of it. I think that was the yeah, that was that was good. It was a good moment. You unfortunately did your ACL. I'm still getting over it. Um, when was the moment you actually decided you would retire and, and wouldn't come back? Was it the chat with Dimmer about the possibility of playing in the grand final? So from like 2015 onwards, this idea of finishing football was 
always in the back of my mind, like, is this really what I want to do? Like, because I'd sort of, um, from an individual perspective, I'd kind of reached what I'd want to, what I wanted to achieve. I'd been all Australian a couple of times. I'd won a Jack Dye medal in 2015. So I was kind of like, okay, I've, I've, I've done what I came here to achieve from an individual perspective. I don't know if we're going to win a flag. I'd like to win a flag. Mm-hmm. And I think that was always like the thing in the back of my mind. If I win a flag, I'll probably retire. Um, and so it was always just this nagging thought. And I always had other things on the go in my life, which sort of inspired me and um, made me sort of pine for the grass on the other side. So um, 2017 won the flag. And I was just kind of like, like, wow, that now, now it is complete. Like now I've, I've been all Australian multiple times, all Australian captain, best and fairest premiership. Like the rest is greed. Like what else could I want out of this AFL career? And so I had some years left on my contract. And so from that point, it was kind of like, it's not a matter of, um, you know, if I will, it's when I will. Um, and so you know, the next year was challenging. It was probably our best year from uh, um, uh, like performance standpoint, 2018. And then obviously Mason Cox has the game of his career and, um, you know, knocks us out of the finals and I have a, I have a stinker. Um, and it's kind of just like, I need redemption from that. I can't, I can't finish now. And then, and like all of these are just like really sort of, like egotistical, selfish emotions, which is just so superficial, which are not really important, but all part of the journey. And then sort of 2019 rolled around and I was like, well, I one of well, IFLX sounds like fun. That may never be done again. So I did that. So it's kind of like, let's just do all the cool things that I, you know, want to do. So I played that, really enjoyed that. Um, and then did my knee. So it was kind of like, okay let's just stop and take stock of what's happened over the last five years. Um, You really thought about finishing the game in 2015. You've won a lot of stuff. You've achieved a lot with a great group. Why are you still here? Um, And so I was going through that rehab process and I, I, I never, I never wanted to just give up and say, you know what, I've done my knee. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Uh, I wanted to get back and I wanted to play in the grand final because I believed that I could. So, and I talked to the um, uh, Julian Feller, who was my surgeon. We both believed that we could talk to um, some of the, the docs and physios at Richmond. It was going to be a push. Um, and so it was always, let's just play it week by week. And so as the time went on, it had to get to a point where it's like, I'm either playing or I'm not. And regardless, I'm retiring at the end of the year. So what's the risk you've got? Because if I do it again, you're not having to pay me out for another year and you, you know, um, but then the question became, if I do it, what will the collateral damage be on the group? If it was in a specific game, like the grand final and we lost, would I be able to deal with that kind of stuff? So that's when it boiled down to me not being able to play, but I not being selected to play, but I believe that I could have played physically um, and the way the Richmond played, we could have been without four or five players because it was an absolute route, but um, yeah, like that. And then, but so I'd sort of already made at the start of the year after a bit of reflection, I'd already pretty much made up my mind that that was going to be the last year of my career. Well, yeah, it's a very selfless thing to do. And 
Well, you've spoken about how you want to be remembered. I guess it's, it's based on your values and that sort of thing, rather than the on-field um, success. You didn't even like me reading out the intro. It's all about you as a person rather than the play. You're going to be remembered as one of the greatest uh, defenders in the in the history of the game. But as a person, your values, how would you like to be remembered, Ramsey? Um just a very supporting, supportive, um, and I don't know the best way to describe this sort of next part, but lighthearted but professional. So being able to make the best of a bad situation um, and a really hard worker um, and, and wanting the best for others, um, I think that's that's the type of person that I wanted to be is that, we work hard together. We have fun together in challenging situations. We hold each other accountable and we make sure that we're all doing the right thing. Because at the end of the day, if I do well, you do well. And if you do well, I do well. Um, and I want to help you get there. Like that's, that's, that's all I would like to be remembered for. And I, I hope that that legacy is carrying on into the next part of my life. That, that that's all I want for these young kids now is to, to help them, um, yeah, selfishly, it makes me feel good to help other people, but I hope that it's a, it's a mutual exchange. Yep, 100%. I love that, Rancy. You are a champion. What I do with all of my guests, I end with 10 quick questions. So the first thing that pops into your head, okay? You're good at this. All right. Your favourite your favorite food? Pizza. Your favourite movie? Interstellar. Which opponent sledged you the most? Steve Johnson. Which person on the footy show are you most like? Or were you most like? Obviously, when you were there, but it's no longer exist. Uh, probably Shane Crawford or Sam Newman. Mm. You released a book about a monkey, a rabbit, and a tiger. What animal's next? A potato. It's not an animal, but it's a vegetable. But it's one <laughs> coming out. So. <laughs> it's actually confirmed it's going to come out the, the baked potato, isn't it? Yeah, the baked potato. So it's, uh, yeah, I, uh, I've written it all and it's, I'm challenging myself to make it a rhyming one. A rhyming one? Oh, good, good. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Uh, how many hours did you sleep the night before the grand final? Ten. Ten? Oh, easy. You didn't get anxious or anything? Before? Not really. That's good because you used to throw up before games, didn't you, in your first half of your career? Did that just go, yeah. the anxiety? <clears throat> yeah, it was because uh, I was... I did get really nervous before games and I'd sort of make myself throw up just to try and release, okay, yeah. relieve, relieve a bit of uh, stress. But um, after a little while and like, especially that year before the, excuse me, before the 2017 grand final, we were just on a, on a roll. Like it was just kind of like Geelong, GWS, Adelaide. Like it was just kind of, it didn't really feel like it was building up to this crescendo moment. It was just kind of like, yep, this is just sort of the next step in the journey. So it, I didn't really feel that nervous before the game. Good. Uh, if there was a movie made about your life, which actor would you like to play you? Mr. Bean or Kramer. <laughs> Kramer would be good. That would be good. Be- best thing you learned from Terry Wallace? Best thing I learned from Terry Wallace. Uh, don't buy a solarium and put it in your house. <laughs> Damien Hardwick's gift giving before games is well known now. What's what's the favourite gift that you've been given from Dimmer? Uh, a vinyl record. Yeah, nice. Which which one? Which record? He's given a few, hasn't he? The vinyl record. Yeah, he's given a few. I think he gave us um, he gave us a couple. So he gave us Queen, mm-hmm. uh, ACDC. Yeah. Um, 
Do you have a record player at home? I did, I did. Oh, okay. uh, I'm, I'm too impatient now. Like I just, I just <laughs> like after like 20 minutes, you have to jump up and flip it over. Yeah, uh, too hard, too hard. All right, last one. Your favourite quotes of all time. Favourite quote of all time. Um, man, I wish I had a word me up on this one. Yeah, I should have. I apologise, <laughs> but you're usually, you're usually. Uh, Look on your feet, but you know why it is because you've got so many quotes that I've heard you say. So it's like, which one do I pick? Yeah, yeah, I've got, I've got a few. Um, my favourite quote of all time. Uh, yeah, eagles may soar, but weasels don't get caught in jet engines. You do you. Very nice, very nice. I love it, Alex Rands. Absolute pleasure, mate. I can't thank you enough for coming on and having a chat with me. Uh, it was a great highlight for me, mate. I uh, yeah, I appreciate it so much. Thank you. No worries, Jimmy. Number eighteen, Alex Rats. Great game, champion. Thanks, mate. Thank you.